Hello, my name is Jose Garcia Moreno, and I want to welcome you to the ACTI Advocate podcast. We are really excited to start this new venture that will give a forum to many brilliant minds that transit here at Loyola Marymount University. Voices and ideas that may go unheard or heard by only a few. May that be in a classroom, at a conference, in a Zoom meeting, or maybe at a symposium. It reminds me of what Charles Ives once said, that the audience is any one of us, a simple human being, maybe sitting at a rocker on a terrace, contemplating the mountains, listening to its own symphony, the sounds in the air around. The human voice is something really incredible. The word is not only air, and the one who talks says something, but that which is said is not quite static as it vanishes immediately. The goal of the ACTI Advocate podcast is to briefly catch those gems for a moment expressed by the human voice before they vanish away. But in the end, the only purpose of this adventure is to humanize us all with the beauty of our stories and our ideas. In our first episode, we want to share with you a brilliant conference on the legal issue of abortion. Three speakers with diverse perspectives, three ideas, and a fruitful and respectful dialogue. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. So my job here tonight is to help everybody understand the Dobbs opinion from a constitutional perspective and its impact on what was the constitutional right to privacy. And in order to do that, uh, we first have to understand a little bit about the origin of the right to abortion in general. But to understand that, we have to understand the right to privacy, which is a broader right under which the right to abortion is a subset. But to understand the right to privacy, we first have to understand a little bit about constitutional law. So that's where I'm going to start us off today. So what are constitutional rights? Just to get us all on the same page, essentially they are things that protect us from government intrusion. So in layman's terms, if you have a constitutional right to something, the government can't stop you from doing that thing. So for example, we have freedom of speech, which means that the government can't stop you from speaking your mind, at least generally speaking, because constitutional rights are not absolute. So for example, if you, or actually, if someone in this room got up and screamed fire falsely, that means that you can technically get arrested for that. And that's because the government has a competing interest in public safety that in that instance outweighs your constitutional right to freedom of speech. So constitutional rights are not absolute, but they are very powerful nonetheless. And so where do they come from? Well, there's kind of two sources or two types of constitutional rights. One are enumerated rights. These are the ones that are explicated and listed out in the Constitution. You all are probably quite familiar with these, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, association, etc., Second Amendment, freedom or the right to bear arms, etc. These are pretty uncontroversial. Where it gets a little bit more interesting is with the second type of rights, which are penumbral rights. And penumbra means the shadow cast by an object. So penumbral rights are rights that aren't actually explicit in the Constitution. Instead, they are rights that exist 
within the penumbras of enumerated rights. They are not implicit, or they're not explicit, they're rather implicit in the Constitution. Now, these are a very controversial type of controversial right, or of constitutional rights when it comes to justices and uh, their, well, let's just say there are two types of constitutional interpretation or two camps when it comes to Supreme Court and other justices. One group are the originalists and the textualists, and they believe that the Constitution needs to be read strictly word for word. And therefore, the only constitutional rights that we have as a society are those that are actually explicit in the Constitution. And then we have another camp, which are the living constitutionalists. And these justices believe that the Constitution isn't a static document. Instead, it's dynamic, and it needs to be reinterpreted as our society evolves. And it's not supposed to set out a set number of constitutional rights. Instead, it sets a set of goals and general principles, such as equality, liberty, justice, that we need to keep in reinterpreting the Constitution in light of our evolving society to live up to those broader principles. So these are, this is the camp of justices that really likes penumbral rights. They're comfortable kind of reading additional rights into the Constitution. And one of the most famous and controversial type of these rights is the right to privacy. So that's what we're going to talk about right now. The right to privacy um, was born in a case called Griswold in 1965. At issue in that case was a Connecticut law that prohibited uh, the, the distribution or the possession of contraceptives, things that can prevent pregnancy. And uh, at that time, a group of married people in, in Connecticut challenged this law as violating a constitutional right of theirs. Now, there's certainly no constitutional right written into the Constitution to contraceptives. They weren't around at the time of, of the writing of the Constitution. So what constitutional right did these people argue they had? Well, they said they had a general right to privacy that included a right to access contraceptives. Now, if you control F on the Constitution, you're not going to find the word privacy in there either. And at that time, no previous case had found that there was a constitutional right to privacy. But these individuals argued that it existed and that it was really the animating force behind many of our enumerated constitutional rights, including freedom of speech, uh, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, and a handful of others. And the court liked this argument and said, yes, we agree. There is this broader right to privacy animating these enumerated rights, and they didn't explain or go into how expansive this right to privacy was, but they found that it at least included the right of married individuals to access contraceptives. And then fast forward a few years later, we have a text, or rather a Massachusetts law that says that unmarried people, that married people can access contraceptives, but not unmarried people. So unmarried people now come to the court to challenge this law and say, hey, wait, we also, within this constitutional right to privacy, have the right to access contraceptives. And there was some technicalities on how this case was decided, but suffice it to say it comes to uh, it comes to stand for this quote right here, which is the right to privacy grows to include, or the right of privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual married or single to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as a decision whether to bear or beget a child. 
And so this is the state of the right to privacy when we get to Roe v. Wade a few years later. So this is where we start to talk specifically about the right to abortion. So here we had a Texas law that made it not only illegal but criminal to provide or access abortions. And Roe challenged this law saying it violated her constitutional right to an abortion, which had never been found before, but she said that it was a right within the broader right to privacy. The argument being that it was really in line with what the court laid out of the bounds of privacy to be in Eisenstadt, which was this, it at least encompasses the right to decide whether to bear or beget a child. And the court agreed. And in doing so, the court did something interesting. They start, they take a look back at history to how abortion was treated across other societies and across time. And they find that it was actually more tolerated than one might have thought in 1970 when many states at that time had, were criminalizing abortion. So they look back to ancient Greece and say it was relatively tolerated. They look back to the British common law, which is the system of laws that we inherited, and saw that usually or that generally abortion was tolerated up to the point of the quickening, which is when the first movements of the child are felt. And that was actually followed in early American law, that abortion was generally tolerated from a legal perspective until the quickening. So the court looks back and sees this toleration and says, you know what, I, I think that they said, if, you know, if this is being tolerated in history, it makes sense that it's, it's more recent that this has been vilified. And we're going to buy the argument that it is this fundamental right within the right to privacy. Now, it's kind of strange that the court decides to, I'll let you know why the court looks back to history. They are concerned about the right to privacy kind of getting out of control at this point. They're scared it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and be used as a shield against all sorts of laws, including the criminalization of prostitution and illicit drug use. So they're searching for some sort of tool to try to rein this right in. And so they they say that if, if we can say, in order to say something is a right within the right to privacy, it at least has to be tolerated in societies and our society in the past. So they say, yes, there is a right to abortion within the right to, um, to privacy, but they say it's not absolute because constitutional rights are rarely absolute. Instead, they say that there are some competing state interests that can overcome the right to abortion, one being protection of maternal health, the other being protection of potential life. And just to pause there for a second, Texas actually framed that interest differently. They said they had an interest in protecting prenatal life. And the court says, no, we are not going to frame it that way because that presumes that life begins at conception. And they acknowledge that that point is, is hotly debated across religions, across philosophies, <laughs> across science. So they said, we're going to reframe this to, to be the right to protect potential life. And they say that the state can start regulating pursuant to these interests at various points in the, or different points in the pregnancy when these interests become compelling. They say the right to protect or the interest in protecting maternal health becomes compelling after the first trimester. They drew that line because they said abortion is actually safer than pregnancy in the first trimester. And they said that the, the interest in protecting potential life became 
compelling at the point at the end of the end of the second trimester, which at that point coincided with the point of viability or 28 weeks. And the thinking there was that when we have a fetus that can survive outside of the womb, there's enough there there to warrant governmental protection. So what this really means in practicality um, following abortion and the, or following Roe v. Wade, and this is what comes to be known as the trimester analysis, is that the state cannot pass any regulations pursuant to its interest in protecting potential life prior to the end of the second trimester. That includes passing law, any law, not just banning abortion, but any law that is trying to get at that interest. So that would be things like causing a woman or requiring a woman to wait 24 hours between requesting and obtaining an abortion, things like that, things that are meant to maybe make a woman think twice about having an abortion. So that's the state of the law uh, after Roe and remains the state of the law for 20 or so years until we get to Casey, another Supreme Court. Uh, case. Now, at that uh, issue in Casey was a Pennsylvania law that required a woman seeking abortion to wait 24 hours um, between seeking and obtaining an abortion to get spousal consent if she was married or to get parental consent if she was a minor. Now, all of these, um, all of these requirements were getting at that state interest of protecting potential life. Now, the problem is that these requirements attached from the beginning of the pregnancy, not after the point of the end of the second trimester as Roe required. So this was a violation of the, of the, the trimester analysis or framework laid out in Roe. So why would Pennsylvania pass this law when it clearly violates Roe? Well, the answer is they wanted, to get, they wanted the law to be challenged so they could get into court and argue that Roe itself should be overturned, because in the intervening two decades between Roe and Casey, a cultural and political debate, almost war, was raging on over this issue of abortion. So they asked the court to overturn Roe, and the court declined the invitation. They upheld the constitutional right to abortion. But what they did do was scrap that trimester analysis of Roe and instead applied a different framework that would allow the state more, uh, more power to regulate according to their interests in protecting potential life. So what they said is that from the, now from the beginning of the pregnancy, the state could pass regulations like the one in Pennsylvania um, that were getting at this interest of protecting potential life, so long as those regulations didn't place an undue burden on the woman seeking abortion or didn't place an undue burden on her constitutional right to abortion. Now, it's a very nebulous standard that also became hotly debated, but for our purposes, suffice it to say, um, and sorry, I don't think I said this, as long as it, those regulations don't place an undue burden on the right to abortion prior to the point of viability, which by the time we get to Casey has moved up a little bit to 24 weeks. So again, it's kind of complicated. We don't need to get too much into the detail. Just suffice to say that what this framework doesn't allow is any sort of ban on abortion prior to viability. And after 
after viability, if a state wants to ban abortion, they could do that so long as there were exceptions for maternal health, which I think uh, Dr. Clark will touch on a little bit more. So that's the state of the law going into Dobbs. Again, no banning, at the very least, no banning of abortion prior to the point of viability, which is at 24 weeks. And we won't go into the nuances of the undue burden test. So that's the state of the law as we move to Dobbs. But before we go to Dobbs, I just want to take a brief pit stop to address two other cases that come up in the intervening years between Casey and Dobbs in this line of privacy cases. One is Lawrence v. Texas. Um, At issue there was a Texas law that made it illegal um, to engage in homosexual sodomy. And the, uh, the parties in that case argued that that law violated uh, a constitutional right of theirs within the right to privacy. The court in, in this case does a similar look back to Roe. They look back in history to see how sodomy has been treated. Um, and they find that it's been relatively tolerated. And because this right kind of synced with the other rights that were found within the right to privacy, which speak to intimate decision-making around sexuality and reproduction, they found that, indeed, the right to privacy does include the right to engage in homosexual sexual activity. And then uh, several years later, actually more like two decades later, we have Oberfell, um, which is the case that found that there is a right to, um, to, to gay individuals to get married. So now we'll move to Dobbs. And as many of you know, in the lead up to Dobbs, a lot of states started passing really restrictive laws about abortion, including full-out bans um, that attached way earlier in the pregnancy than 24 weeks or the point of viability. These laws were a clear violation of the framework laid out in Casey. So again, why did all these states start passing these laws that were clearly in violation of standing Supreme Court law? The same reason that Pennsylvania passed their law in Casey. They want did the law to be challenged so they could get into court and challenge Roe v. Wade um, and try to get it overturned. Now, the reason that states started to do this around this time was that Trump had, or President Trump had gotten, uh, at that point, three justices onto the court who were thought to be pro-life justices. So the thinking was, it, now was the time that we had a, that there was a sympathetic court uh, that might overturn Casey or Roe once and for all. So the court had a few options going into this case. They didn't, it, it wasn't so binary, binary as uphold or, or overturn. But first option was to uphold Roe and Casey. Second option would have been to uphold Roe and the idea that there is in fact a constitutional right to abortion, but overturn Casey, scrap the viability framework and come up with a new framework that allowed the state uh, greater reign to restrict abortion access pursuant to their interest in protecting potential life, just like Casey did with Roe. So for example, the court could have said, you know what, we're going to not, viability is no longer the bar against prohibiting abortion. Instead, we're going to choose a line like fetal pain, which would be quite before um, the point of viability and say, okay, you states, you have to allow abortion up until that point, let's say 12, 15 weeks, but then 
states, if you want to ban abortion, if you feel like that's right for your population, go ahead. This is kind of similar to the, uh, what the, one of the concurrences from Justice Roberts said in the case. He wanted to come up with a different framework. His, the line he used is, once the, the woman has had a reasonable chance to obtain an abortion, then a state could ban it. But that is not what the majority of the court decided. Instead, they, they went full bore and overturned both Casey and Roe, finding that there is no longer a constitutional right to abortion. So why did the court decide this way? What reasoning did they use? It is not the case that the court decided suddenly that, they, that we could be sure that life began at conception or that personhood began at conception or that fetuses are people. That's not the, the reasoning the court used. Instead, they really relied on this concept of was abortion, this question of is abortion deeply rooted in our nation's history? So they do the same historical look back that the court did in Roe, but they apply, and they see the same history, but they apply a different lens. So whereas Roe was looking back to see if abortion was kind of relatively tolerated, Dobbs is looking back to see essentially full-throated support of abortion on behalf of the law. And that's just not the case. That's not what they found. And they said because of that, Roe was mistaken in finding a constitutional right to abortion within the right to privacy, and therefore it should be overturned. Now, at that point, there could have been one kind of saving uh, grace for Roe, which is this concept of stare decisis, which is Latin for, and I should have italicized it because it it is Latin, um, for let it stand or it shall stand. And it's really a a foundational principle of our our Jewish prudential system, Essentially, it means that, oh, I'm getting, okay, thank you, Gigi. Um, Essentially, it it means that a case should not be overturned generally. And instead, a case, once a case is decided, it should be used to inform how future cases are decided. Now, as Dobbs made clear, stare decisis is not an inexorable command. Cases can be overturned if they meet a five-factor test that the court went through. I won't bore you with all those factors, but I'll just name a few. One is the nature of the error of the case that is being argued to be overturned. And they, this court found the nature of the error in Roe to be grievous, they said. They likened it to uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, which, for those of you that are not familiar, is the case that that upheld the constitutionality of Jim Crow or segregation laws. And then that case was eventually overturned uh, by Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, they also made note of the fact, they, or this court felt, that there was no reliance at issue here, that women hadn't come to rely on having the right to abortion in planning their lives. And because the five-factor test in their analysis uh, was kind of satisfied here, they said, we're all clear to go ahead and overturn Roe. And that's what they did. And and I know Dr. Clark is going to go into this a little bit further, but to just be clear, Dobbs doesn't make abortion illegal. Instead, what it does is it allows the state to decide whether to allow or restrict, 
or ban or something in between, basically to regulate abortion as they see fit. So what we've seen, unsurprisingly, is more liberal states moving to shore up abortion rights and access, uh, more conservative states moving to ban or significantly restrict abortion access. Um, but Dr. Clark will, I think, pick up further on that. So just my final point I wanted to make here is what is the impact, if any, of this case on other rights to privacy? So this court um, is made up primarily of, of textualists or originalists who it is pretty palpable in reading the opinion do not generally like the right to privacy at all. Um, and if this deeply rooted in our history's nation's history test is applied to some of these other cases within the right to privacy, including, like in Lawrence v. Texas, the right to engage in homosexual activity, then it's very possible they're not going to pass muster. And so there's con there was concern on the part of the dissent and, and amongst others that this is the beginning of a chipping away of the rights within the right to privacy. Now, the, the majority opinion tried to allay those fears and say, look, we're only talking about abortion here. Everybody calm down. But a lot of people have found that, uh, that reassurance not to be so reassuring. So just uh, putting that on your radar that there's at least potentially a bigger impact here than just to abortion. And with that, I'm going to hand over the mic to Dr. Clark. Thank you all. So I just have to say that was amazing. <laughs> this is some complicated stuff. Um, wow. So I am, uh, this is, I'm so excited to be here with you um, and feel enriched by getting to know you. Um, and I'm always honored and humbled when I'm asked to speak with Professor Deloro. <laughs> so um, I've been asked to talk about the post-Dobbs landscape. So what Dobbs has helped usher in now. But to do that, I do need to dig just a little bit more into Dobbs um, because to help us understand exactly what it's opened up and what kinds of laws we're seeing today and the effects of those laws. So although discussions about abortion jurisprudence tend to focus on the preservation of women's reproductive choice or freedom as balanced against protecting fetal life, um, I want to lift up another interest um, that Professor Gmar did mention um, and that often gets lost, though, in these conversations, and that's the interest in preserving health. This was actually an essential part of the abortion jurisprudence laid out in both Roe and Casey. Um, and I want to focus on this today for a couple of reasons. For one, it deepens our understanding of the scope of protection that was lost in Dobbs. Um, in particular, there seems to be a complete erasure of health as an interest or a check on government's ability to regulate reproduction. Second, it connects that erasure to the emergence of more restrictive and punitive abortion bans that we're seeing today. Bans that are actually causing both very serious and wide-ranging harms uh, to women who are pregnant as well as those who are not pregnant. So that, that's what my focus will be, those two pieces. 
So the first is this uh, concern, especially in particular in women's health, and I'm going to broaden that out in just a moment, um, but in terms of the abortion right established in Roe. So the preservation of women's health was really crucial, both as an interest unto itself, um, but also as a, a basis for balancing the other interests I just talked about, and especially because of its connection to liberty and equality concerns. So, for example, um, we learned that the, you know, the court's prohibition on pre-viability bans, that was based in part on the fact that abortion was actually safer than pregnancy in the early part of pregnancy. Um, we also learned that there could be a ban, right? States could ban abortion after viability. But even there, they could only do so as long as there was an exception for the preservation of the woman's life or health. Um, and so there, the, the role of health was um, especially explicit. And this was important for a couple of reasons. So this, the idea of health, like beyond just protecting the life of the woman, but preservation of health was broadly construed. And it provided a protection for decisions that depend on uncertain risk in pregnancy, um, risk assessments that have to be made by physicians, as well as patient-specific vulnerability or sensitivity to that risk. These are factors that are important. Um, we learn about them throughout law and ethics to justify a certain level of deference to physicians, and especially to protect patient autonomy. So we hear about this all the time, and, and it, it creates the kind of foundations for that protection in other areas of healthcare. It was also an important part of what happened in Roe and Casey in protecting the abortion right. As we also learned, Casey did relax some of the constitutional scrutiny um, that we saw in Roe. So it did kind of open up the space for more regulation, but it maintained that pre-viability ban. And it importantly also maintained that broad health exception in the case of post-viability bans. By contrast, the majority in the Dobbs opinion, um, and it's very important there was both a majority and a dissent, right? Um, and so most of what I'm going to be saying is really focused on the majority. So the majority virtually ignored the health implications of allowing government to force a woman to carry a pregnancy to term. It also disregarded any connection between this interest and the constitutionally protected interests of liberty and equality. One of the things, so, so Professor Gumar talked about kind of the courts look back at history to understand what the kind of framers of the rights and amendments would have thought was protected at that time. But another kind of important theory that was teased out in Rowan Casey was that abortion was part of this kind of broader right of privacy because it was integrally linked to the kinds of decisions that have been recognized as protected under liberty interest. Um, and so, for example, that privacy right includes the right to bodily integrity and autonomy, which has been recognized as supporting a right to refuse unwanted medical intervention and to protect patient autonomy in healthcare decision-making. It also includes the freedom to make basic decisions about whether to have children, which has been extended to being able to access contraception to prevent and control the timing of pregnancy. Again, something that was seen as so important because of the health implications of not being able to control the timing of pregnancy. So 
these theories are in there. Um, these really important interests are in the dissent. So if you want a fully fleshed out version, that's what you'd have to read. But the majority virtually ignored all of this. As for equality, the majority also just disregarded any connection between the health concerns and equality interests. It didn't account for the fact that women would be, you could say, uniquely or disproportionately affected by laws that would prevent um, women from being able to decide whether to carry the pregnancy to term. Um, and importantly, it also didn't even account for um, kind of broader health concerns. So, you know, historically, right, the focus has been on women and our understanding of women as uniquely, right, the ones to bear uh, pregnancy. But of course, we know now, and there's a greater awareness of this implication as well for transgender men. You know, uh, one could say, okay, so where, kind of, how does that also implicate equity if you're broadening this category? But the category of transgender men and kind of transgender people generally, they also fit into a category of historically excluded and marginalized individuals whom the government has targeted for certain kinds of sexual and reproductive regulation and control. Both women and transgender men have this in common, and they are the ones who are going to be uniquely impacted because of their capacity to become pregnant by laws that disregard these health interests completely invisible in the opinion, were some of the most vulnerable groups who suffer from intersecting forms of oppression, like black or African-American women. They suffer pregnancy-related mortality and morbidity, sometimes from two to three to even four times the rate um, as other women do. So this is the erasure of health. Um, that was so important that we lost in Dobbs. But this erasure was cemented in the kind of final part of the opinion that Professor Gumar refers to when she talks about kind of what level of scrutiny, if any, is abortion regulation going to be subjected to now? Finding no liberty or equality interests implicated by abortion bans, the court applied a uh, basically the lowest level of constitutional scrutiny to that Mississippi law, that issue. This is called the rational basis test. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with this more technical term, it basically means, and I want to quote because this is important, that a law must be sustained if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interest. So there are a few things that are important about this. In practice, this effectively shields laws from scrutiny of either the government's purported interest or whether the means chosen by the government is actually, in fact, related to that interest. All you need to show is that they could have thought that it would be related. And this is true beyond abortion. This, this is the nature of the rational basis test in law. In terms of a legitimate state interest that would justify an abortion ban, um, the court first declared health regulations to be presumptively valid, which means it's going to be much harder to try to challenge them. But then the majority listed a broad range of government interests that would satisfy the rational basis standard, including, and I'm going to quote, the preservation of life at all stages of development. This would seem to allow an abortion ban 
before one would even know of a pregnancy. What the Dobbs majority does not do when they're applying this test, though, is address whether there are any outer limits to this tremendous discretion that is now given to government to regulate abortion. What kind of exceptions, if any, should be required to account for the fact that pregnancy remains more dangerous for women than abortion? And what role, if any, do questions about the true effect of these laws have in considering their constitutionality? What if they're not actually saving or protecting fetal life? I'll come back to that in a moment. What if they're harming the pregnant patients in ways that are even inconsistent with the law itself because it may have an exception? The super low standard tends to shield us, courts, from really asking those questions. So, with that said, what does the legal landscape of abortion law look like today? So, since Dobbs, there have been several types of pre-viability bans that have begun to take effect, whether through newly enacted bans, some bans that were enacted prior to Dobbs but in anticipation of the overruling of Roe and Casey, And in some cases, there are abortion bans on the books from before Roe that people are arguing should now come into effect. And in a few states, there's actually a combination. So there's there's actually a lot of confusion um, about what's going on. And part of the reason there's confusion is some of these laws uh, contradict each other. In some cases, many of these laws are being challenged. I'll talk about that again a little bit later. Um, And so in short, abortion law is in flux. Um, so the, I mean, that's a huge caveat to what I'm about, what I'm about to say, um, which is to identify more trends that we're seeing. Some of these may be in effect, some may not be in effect. But I want to identify four important characteristics that we are seeing of the most restrictive or punitive bans um, that make them more likely to cause harm, harm that we already see unfolding. First characteristic is timing. Abortion bans are being set earlier and earlier at points before one would even know typically of a pregnancy. So several states already ban abortion at six weeks, and some are either already banning or have signaled uh, their intent to ban abortion from the moment of conception. The second characteristic we're seeing is an extreme narrowing of the scope of exceptions in these bans. So again, last survey I did all of the bans included an exception to save the life of the pregnant patient. But this is much narrower than the health exception that was previously required under Roe and Casey. So so just to kind of explain what this means, among states with pre-viability bans, none have general health exceptions. States that have physical health exceptions tend not to apply until a risk has progressed to the point of being deemed an emergency or sufficiently serious, terms that may not be clearly defined in the law. None of the exceptions I saw, again, it could could have changed yesterday, so (laughs) that's the caveat. Don't quote me on any of these. Things are really in flux, but at least the last time I was looking at this, which was recently... Um, None of these exceptions allowed physical risks like suicide that result from mental health illness. Less than 10 states specify exceptions for lethal fetal anomaly. So that means where the fetus is not going to survive in any event. 
And only three have exceptions for rape or incest. The third characteristic I want to highlight is the who may be targeted for punishment for this. So the most obvious targets of abortion bans have been physicians and other healthcare providers or entities um, of abortion care, right? Um, and abortion bans um, definitely, we'll talk about this, how they're written to punish them more harshly in just a moment. But importantly, they are also being written increasingly broadly um, to be able to punish others as well. So concerns have been raised about whether pregnant patients can be prosecuted for violating a ban. Um, and this is not ridiculous. So even before Dobbs, certain pregnant women experiencing unintended pregnancy losses were being targeted for prosecution based on a theory that they engaged in behavior that increased risk of harm to the fetus. This is unintended loss. And this was even where a causal link couldn't be proven. These women are being targeted for criminal prosecutions. Of course, poor and black women are among those disproportionately targeted for these prosecutions. And these are the same women who are disproportionately vulnerable to pregnancy-related complications if they are made to carry a pregnancy to term. Some laws are written broadly enough to criminalize assistance, like like aiding and abetting facilitation of an abortion, that kind of language is being used in ways that can cast a wide criminal net that ensnares family, friends, other kind of care or support workers who provide funding assistance, maybe you know, drive somebody to an abortion clinic in another state, provide information about where they can get an abortion, or other social supports. Again, this is not crazy. Uh, Texas has already uh, issued letters threatening a law firm, in fact, uh, one of my, my old firms, Sidley and Austin, um, because it was going to allow its benefit plan um, to be used by people who needed to go across state lines to get different kinds of health care if they have to travel, but including abortion. So they've already been threatened with criminal fines, criminal, uh, sorry, criminal prosecution, civil fines, and even professional discipline. The fourth characteristic I want to highlight is the increasingly punitive nature of the laws um, at stake, and this is where I want to focus on the provider punishment. So abortion bans are now being treated differently from other types of regulations of provider conduct. Some bans frame violations as murder or homicide, and they're likely to rely on severe criminal penalties, including up to 15 years in prison. Some laws um, actually allow providers to be arrested for merely performing an abortion and then require or would require the provider to then have to prove that a statutory exception applies. So in law, we call this an affirmative defense. So the mere fact that you provide the abortion, even if later it turns out that that was in fact legal because it met even the narrowest exception, it leaves the provider vulnerable to government officials who want to target and prosecute first and make the provider prove legality later. So what's the bottom line of these characteristics, these trends that we are seeing? Bans with these characteristics are already having a powerful chilling effect on provider willingness to deliver care. And it's impacting patients with and without viable pregnancies and non-pregnant patients. So given the stated purpose of these bans to protect fetal life, let's begin with those who have viable pregnancies. We're already hearing reports from women whose pregnancies pose serious risk to their health, 
being denied timely abortion care because of legal uncertainty about when the pregnancy has become dangerous enough to meet the statutory exception. Provider reports confirm this, and they lament that this uncertainty forces them to violate ethical and professional duties of care. So um, there's been some physician testimony about this, and one physician gave the example of a type of high blood pressure called pulmonary hypertension that's fatal in pregnant people 50% of the time. She said physicians are taught to intervene before patients get sick, but these laws are telling physicians they have to wait until it's an emergency. Then she says, but what constitutes an emergency isn't at all clear because disease or illness generally happens on a continuum and can be unpredictable. A patient may seem fine one minute and is crashing the next. She says, what I need to do as a doctor is to intervene earlier in that continuum to keep that person safe and healthy. But the laws are making it really unclear about whether I can do that. And of course, waiting for the patient to have to, uh, making the patient have to wait that long puts the patient in a more vulnerable position in a less resilient position to be able to recover and respond to treatment. But I think some of the reports that are actually causing the most shock and concern, um, if you've been reading the papers, seem to be unfolding harms uh, to women where fetal life is not even at stake. So consider those with non-viable pregnancies. Abortion medication and procedures are used to manage certain types of unintended pregnancy loss. For example, care may be needed to treat a spontaneous miscarriage that happens in early pregnancy if it's incomplete. So you need that care to help facilitate the passing of the miscarriage and prevent infection and other complications. Abortion care is also used to treat ectopic pregnancies. This is a condition in which pregnancy is never viable and which can become fatal for the pregnant patient if the pregnancy is not terminated right away. But since these new bans have come into effect, Patients with non-viable pregnancies report being denied care or forced to wait longer for medically necessary abortion-related treatment. And these delays are not only prolonging patients' pain and distress, but increasing their risk of serious health complications. In the absence of a clear exception for non-viable pregnancies, some providers or their institutions believe they must wait until complications develop in order to avoid criminal liability. Now, I want to just take a moment to remember what we just learned, right? Because there are some people who say, well, this is ridiculous. Of course the abortion ban wasn't meant to apply in this situation. People are just kind of sounding alarms to try to make it seem like something horrible is happening that was never intended. But recall what I said. Bans are getting implemented earlier. Exceptions are narrower and often unclear and they're more punitive so that providers can be punished and prosecuted before they're able to even prove that something's legal. It's this combination of these different characteristics that are creating this powerful chilling effect that's making some physicians and many of their institutions, quite frankly, in some cases you have physicians who are like, I'm going to do it, and it's the institution that says, no, you're not. We have to review that and make sure it's legal. Finally, emerging bans are also impeding healthcare for non-pregnant patients. So certain medications like methotrexate and misoprostol, they're used to induce abortion, but they have another purpose. They actually have many other purposes. They may be necessary to treat conditions like cancer, autoimmune diseases, arthritis, or stomach ulcers. 
In states with very restrictive abortion bans, patients are reporting having trouble accessing this medication. They're getting cut off, right? Why, if they're not pregnant? Again, the earlier timing of these bans coupled with the punitive character. Medication is being denied because of the possibility of interference with a future pregnancy that they're not going to know if the ban right, kicks into effect too early. So I'd like to end with a, a couple of additional notes about whether these bans are in fact protecting fetal life and the reality of health care in the U.S. First is that state borders are permeable. As you heard, some states still, and you're in California, so I'm sure you know if you can't really turn on the news without seeing um, California talk about the laws it's enacting to be more protective of abortion, right? So, so we have some abortion protective states, we have some abortion restrictive states, and quite frankly, even before Dobbs, you had women in abortion restrictive states um, tra- having to travel to other states that had more access open. Um, so some women are getting abortions that way. Some, if it's early enough in pregnancy, are trying to use medication to self-manage. Medication they may get online from you know, other places, from friends. Um, and so in many of these cases, the abortion is not being prevented. Fetal life is not being saved. But what's happening is conditions are being created where um, there's increased risk or danger, either because of the delay and what we've already talked about, or the other piece of this is that um, women are actually growing afraid of their own physicians in their state. So, for example, women who do self-manage on their own through medication, if they have any complication after that, they, they don't want to go to the hospital in their state. They're afraid to. There are teenagers who are online saying, I won't, get, I won't even tell my uh, doctor my last date of my menstrual period. That's basic information you give every time. Everybody knows this. Let me tell you, every time you go to the doctor, basic information that you give your doctor, right? All ages, are, are, they're afraid, right? If, so for those studying bioethics, you know that undermining this trust, oh my gosh, this is foundational to so many of the principles that we see, that we study and learn about in law and ethics that apply in healthcare. And the other thing I want to say is that states that have the most restrictive and punitive abortion bans also tend to be the states that do the least in terms of providing healthcare and other social supports for pregnant women and families with young children. They're not expanding Medicaid. They're not protecting pregnancy leave to allow women to be able to choose to have a pregnancy, to choose to parent with dignity but not lose their job, to still have some kind of income support. They also have some of the worst health outcomes for pregnancy, and I mean fetal and newborn outcomes as well as outcomes for pregnant people. There are supportive and equitable approaches to health care that can promote both health of fetal life and the fetus and the newborn and promote the health of the pregnant patient. Now, I'm not going to pretend that these kinds of approaches avoid these difficult questions or solve it or or anything like that. They don't. Fundamentally, these are still very difficult questions. But certainly, there are many approaches that states that um, purport to care about fetal life could be taking that truly are so much more supportive and equitable because they empower vulnerable people, vulnerable women, 
to choose to be able to deliver safely and to parent with dignity. And so I would like to just lift up kind of that way of also trying to think about how to not always uh, think of this as one interest pitted against another, but to also try to think about approaches that include a way of thinking about promoting these together. Again, recognizing that that does not solve all of the, the issues. So I think my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Goomer and Professor Clark. Uh, I'm sneaking in, sneaking in as a non-lawyer, and therefore uh, I will introduce a change in perspective in my talk. My talk addresses the following questions at the boundary of morality and law. What moral premises have informed the American legal discussion on abortion? What premises ought to do so? I speak of moral rather than legal premises. Though it is necessary to distinguish morality and law, it is also impossible to separate them. And I stand by the presupposition that legal developments reflect maturations and sometimes declines in the ethos of society, in the perceptions of right and wrong, good and bad, that substantiate our living together. Moral premises about abortion, then, whether supporting a constitutional right to choose, as in Roe and Casey, or conversely, denying such a right, as in Dobbs, stand in the background of the norms articulated by the law. They define recessive premises, informed with philosophical and ethical presuppositions that might be less evident in their meaning than the legal provisions they overtly convey. Still, we cannot have a full picture of the legal landscape without taking into account those moral premises. The letter of the law becomes fully clear only in light of the spirit that pervades it. I offer three considerations. The first concerns the Dobbs decision. The second looks back at the framework overridden by Dobbs. The third outlines a personal position on the legal matter of abortion in our country. The first consideration focuses on the moral premises of the Dobbs decision. I find the decision morally inadequate for the following reason. Dobbs fails to provide a full account of the moral agency of women as autonomous beings, endowed with full equality and the freedom to make a substantial choice over perhaps their most personal and consequential of all life decisions. It is true that the failure in question concerns per se, only the recognition of a constitutional right to abortion. It does not deny the freedom of the states to enshrine such right in their laws through statutes, legislations, or referenda. However, it also leaves the door open for the states to do the opposite. In the potential conflict between a woman's claim to autonomy 
and a state's right to determine the future of her pregnancy, the Dobbs decision sides with the latter over the former, rejecting any space of personal liberty for women, even in cases of rape or incest. Why so? I find it interesting that the argument for the position adopted by the Supreme Court in Dobbs is not grounded in the concern for prenatal life, nor is it based on the affirmation that the right to life of a developing human being overrides a woman's right to choose. The state's interest in protecting prenatal life plays no part in the majority's analysis. In fact, the majority takes pride in non expressing in not expressing a view about the status of the fetus. So their argument relies purely on the following question. Does the woman's decision to end the pregnancy involves any 14th Amendment liberty interest or not? The answer is that it does not. The legal reasoning justifying such denial of a woman's liberty interest is not my immediate concern at this point of our conversation. I leave it up to our legal scholars to decide whether and why Dobbs sides with the so-called originalist interpretation of the Constitution or whether its decision to abandon stare decisis as a principle central to the rule of law is actually justified. I want to call attention to something deeper, and that is the apparent decision's blindness to developments in our society that have contributed to the affirmation of women's moral agency. According to Dobbs, a woman's decision to end the pregnancy does not involve any 14th Amendment liberty interest for the simple fact that the law did not intend to do so when the amendment in question became law. In other words, since the liberty in question did not extend to the protection of a woman's choice in 1868, it cannot serve as a basis for its later justification either. So I'm quite puzzled by this argument. As the dissenting opinion points out, there are a number of other things the law did not protect back then. In fact, it failed to do so for decades to come. It did not protect the right to same-sex intimacy and marriage. It did not protect the right to marry across racial lines. It did not protect the right to contraceptive use or the right not to be sterilized without consent. And so Dobbs fails to recognize that our social and cultural perceptions of women's autonomy in all its dimensions, including the power of control over their bodies, have dramatically changed since 1868. I do not see such changes in perception as a sliding into some kind of moral relativism I also do not subscribe to the notion that, well, everything is up for grabs unless we hold firm to an ahistorical interpretation of the 14th Amendment. The changes I'm referring to are the results of social struggles by women to affirm their place within our American society. 
I see them as contributing to a maturation in our moral sensibility in finally coming to recognize women as full moral agents. Such moral agency gives women the freedom to decide whether and when to have children. It determines how they live their lives and how they contribute to the society around them. Furthermore, since full moral agency defines the status of citizens within a secular democratic polity, the failure to recognize dimensions that are essential to a woman's freedom risks curtailing the requirements of full democratic participation for more than half of our society. To impose, a cho- to impose a choice on women over matters that belong to their most intimate sphere threatens to compromise their integrity, bodily or otherwise, as persons. It also undermines basic requirements of tolerance toward the pluralism of moral perspectives within society. In matter of personal life, a democracy differs from a totalitarian regime because it maximizes, rather than restricting, a space of personal freedom to all citizens, including women. So I come to my second consideration, and now I want to unpack the underlying premises of the framework overwritten by Dobbs and submit that the latitude of a woman's right to choose in Roe and Casey, extending all the way to viability, goes too far. My argument relies upon two premises. First, a notion of the human being defined by a relational rather than absolute autonomy. And second, a positive rather than negative understanding of the purpose of the law. First, I stand by a notion of the human being, a philosophical anthropology, to use a technical term, in which freedom of choice is not absolute. We are embodied beings, not isolated monads. Since we are dependent upon one another, we are also responsible for each other's vulnerability, which we share in our common condition. I believe society has a responsibility to support and care for both a woman facing pregnancy and the developing human being in her. We need to overcome an anthropology for which each person is an island and a notion of society that is simply the sum total of individuals living side by side, caring for their own interests only, trying not to stamp on each other's feet. What I'm saying here does not contradict at all what I articulated in my first consideration. A right to a fully free de- I'm sorry, a right to a fully free decision toward one's pregnancy stands within a wider matrix of additional rights the law ought to defend. They include the right to prenatal care, work leaves, family financial support, and a slew of social goods necessary to the flourishing of women and children as human beings. The agency of women, which I fully support, 
can find the conditions of its practical sustainability only in the relativity and support of others. In light of this, the anthropology that underlies the framework of Roe and Casey seems defective to me. It rightly recognizes the, the centrality of women's autonomy in matters central to their existence. At the same time, it fails to pay heed to the responsibility generated by the relation of mother and child. If at all, it does so too late. For Roe and Casey, such responsibility and the subsequent interest of the state sets in only at the point of viability when presumably the developing human being is able to survive on its own, becoming now a self-sufficient being potentially capable of autonomy and self-determination. With respect to the unborn life before viability, such notion has little to offer. The unborn is not autonomous nor self-determining, thus so goes the argument. If the fetus is not autonomous, abortion harms no one. If autonomous, then the harm cannot be justified. As I said before, at stake here is also a way of thinking about the purpose of the law. We tend to see the basic purpose of the law as essentially negative. In this view, the business of the law is strictly to set boundaries and impose limits. It restrains individuals from harming other self-standing autonomous individuals seen in isolation. For my part, I see the law as transcending a purely negative purpose. The law has also a positive function. It can help foster a sense of care for the bond of reciprocity between human beings, including the bond of mother and child and the bond a pregnant woman shares with the community to which she belongs. In America, it is this positive understanding of the law what has shifted the way we look at certain uh, issues such as civil rights, medical leave, disability. Let me indulge for a moment for the sake of, of argument on this ladder. Disability. All the way up to mid-1970s, many American cities, including Chicago, Columbus, Omaha, prohibited persons with disability to have a normal public presence. The Chicago Municipal Code of the time had a provision known as Ugly Law, which required the following, quote, No person who is diseased, maimed, mutilated, or in any way deformed so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object or improper person, is to be allowed in or on the public ways or other public places in this city, or shall therein or thereon expose himself to public view under a penalty of no less than $1, nor more than $50 for each offense." End quote. The historical discrimination against persons with disability may appear hardly believable when not simply dumbfounding to our contemporary sensibility. Yet it puts us in the condition to appreciate 
the cultural maturation we have been able to achieve when we introduced in 1990 a new legal framework, the America with Disability Act. Such framework and its measures have had a profound impact on our social sensibility toward the disabled. They have produced changes not only in our personal attitude toward them, but also in the legal recognition of their individual rights. So in the American with Disability Act, and that's why I, I'm citing this example, the law goes beyond the task of setting boundaries among individuals, carving out a space of isolation for those who cannot claim full autonomy and self-determination. It positively calls for the integration of the disabled. Furthermore, it engages citizens to come to terms with the reality and I'm tempted to say with the visibility of persons with disability, to recognize their potential contribution, to assure equality of opportunity and full participation within society. This model of the law offers a different understanding of freedom because it sees autonomy as a dimension that is integral rather than alternative to social solidarity. It also shows the potential effect of a different anthropological ideal, which recognizes the embodied condition of the person, her vulnerability and dependence within social and historical ties. I come to my final point, in which I try to bring together the considerations developed in my previous two sections. And I'm wondering uh, what uh, you might be feeling now, how it's going to pull the two of them together. But I offer suggestions for, for what I consider a potential compromise on the legality of abortion, a compromise in which women's autonomy and social solidarity toward prenatal life might come to mutual recognition. I said before that an anthropology of dependence and vulnerability ought to provide the context within which to frame the extension of autonomy. The nature of freedom for women as for men is not reducible to a freedom from, but only grows in relativity to the other in becoming a freedom to. It is a freedom that finds limits, but also meaning in serving the face of the other. The Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas reminds us, we are truly free only when we become responsible. So freedom is mysterious because it gives us this choice. We can exploit the vulnerability of the other who is dependent on us and turn such dependence into an opportunity for the exercise of power, or we can have the courage to pay heed to the vulnerability of the other, allowing into full visibility the injunction inscribed in the other's face, the command that says, do not kill me. Even when it does not speak, even when it is incapable of speaking, the face of a human being summons to respect and reverence. It does so especially when it suffers and grimaces in pain. 
This is for me the threshold beyond which a freedom to choose cannot legally go. This threshold we cross substantially earlier than visibility. I grant that the life of a developing human being does not exist in a vacuum. It is embodied in the flesh of a woman. In this sense, it is entrusted to her choice. The latter, however, extends only so far. I submit that the ability of the feeders to feel pain represents the limit at which the legal right to choose ought to end. It is not entirely easy to come to scientific consensus around the moment such emergence of pain occurs in fetal development. Evidence seems to point to somewhere between 16 and 20 weeks, but doubt with respect to extinguishing human life imposes prudential restraint rather than uncertain daring. This is why the law should limit a woman's freedom to choose at the point when the possibility of inflicting pain upon a developing human being sets in. In fact, for prudential reasons, it should do so before that possibility becomes actual reality. Beyond that point, I believe abortion represents a form of cruel intervention on the fetus and on our sense of communal belonging falters. This we owe minimally to the vulnerability and dependence of a developing human being. For most of European countries, the space of freedom to choose is limited, with certain exceptions, to the first trimester of pregnancy. I stand by this threshold for our state laws as well, on the premise that such space is sufficient for a woman to make an informed choice, as it should be for all medical decisions. I conclude. I would hope that the change of heart entailed by hospitality to the disabled, of which I spoke before, might bring about in the long run a legal landscape for the unborn, consistent with the compromise I articulated. The decision toward the developing human life belongs in principle to the woman who bears it, to her responsibility and choice. This, as I said, within limits. From a moral point of view, and for reasons that belong to a different talk, I would hope for that decision to be in favor of life and to honor the mystery of a new human being emerging in a woman's body. The reason for this new human life being there, a body in the flesh of another, transcends the biological mechanisms that brought it into existence. The moral response to life cannot be, in my opinion, anything less than life-affirming. One can easily recognize that being alive for each one of us owes first to our mother accepting our emergence in her flesh. I do not assume that for all women such acceptance was entirely free. There are forms of constriction upon a woman more subtle and perhaps more violent than those imposed by a state. Still, I hope for a legal framework in which 
A woman's decision toward her pregnancy is the response of a full moral agent endowed with dignity and for that capable of recognizing the dignity of the life that grows in her as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Acti Advocate. Please check in with us on a regular basis. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Alex Thurner. Our producer is Jose Garcia Marano. A big thanks to Roberto Del Oro, Brietta Clark, and Jennifer Goomer. <laughs>